Section 23 of the Book of Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Baring Gould. Section 23 Little Joe Gander. Part 2. Now then, young shaver, exclaimed the father. At your pranks again? How often have I told you not to go intruding into a place of worship? Church ain't for such as you. If you hadn't been punished a bit already, wouldn't I larrup you neither? Oh, no. Little Joe's head was bad for some days. His cheeks were flushed and his eyes bright, and he talked strangely, he who was usually so silent. What troubled him was the loss of his fiddle. He did not know what had become of it whether it had been stolen or confiscated. He asked after it, and when at last it was produced, smashed to chips, with the strings torn and hanging loose about it like the cordage of a broken vessel, he cried bitterly. Miss Amory came to the cottage to see him, and finding father and stepmother out, went in and pressed five shillings into his hand. Then he laughed with delight, and clapped his hands, and hid the money away in his pocket, but he said nothing and Miss Amory went away convinced that the child was half a fool. But little Joe had sense in his head. Though his head was different from those of others, he knew that now he had the money wherewith to buy the beautiful fiddle he had seen in the shop window many months before, and to get which he had worked and denied himself food. When Miss Amory was gone and his stepmother had not returned, he opened the door of the cottage and stole out. He was afraid of being seen, so he crept along in the hedge, and when he thought anyone was coming he got through a gate or lay down in a ditch, till he was some way on his road to the town. Then he ran till he was tired. He had a bandage round his head, and, as his head was hot, he took the rag off, dipped it in water, and tied it round his head again. Never in his life had his mind been clearer than it was now, for now he had a distinct purpose, an object easily attainable before him. He held the money in his hand, and looked at it, and kissed it, then pressed it to his beating heart, then ran on. He lost breath, he could run no more, he sat down in the hedge and gasped. The perspiration was streaming off his face. Then he thought he heard steps coming fast along the road he had run, and as he feared pursuit, he got up and ran on. He went through the village four miles from home, just as the children were leaving school, and when they saw him some of the elder cried out, Here was Joe Gander, quack, quack, Joe the Gander, quack, 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 and the little ones joined in the banter. The boy ran on, though hot and exhausted, and with his head swimming, to escape their merriment. He got some way beyond the village when he came to a turnpike. There he felt dizzy, and he timidly asked if he might have a piece of bread. He would pay for it if they would change a shilling. The woman at the pike pitied the pale, hollow-eyed child and questioned him, but her questions bewildered him, and he feared she would send him home, so that he either answered nothing or in a way which made her think him distraught. She gave him some bread and water and watched him going on towards the town till he was out of sight. The day was already declining. It would be dark by the time he reached the town, but he did not think of that. 
He did not consider where he would sleep, whether he would have strength to return ten miles to his home. He thought only of the beautiful red violin, with the yellow bridge hung in the shop window, and offered for three shillings and sixpence. Three and sixpence! Why, he had five shillings! He had money to spend on other things beside the fiddle. He had been sadly disappointed about his savings from the weekly sixpence. He had asked for them, he had earned them, not by his work only, but by his abstention from two pieces of bread per diem. When he asked for the money, his stepmother answered that she had put it away in the savings bank. If he had it, he would waste it on sweet stuff. If it were hoarded up, it would help him on in life when left to shift for himself, and if he died, why, it would go towards his burying. So the child had been disappointed in his calculations, and had worked and starved for nothing. Then came Miss Amory with her present, and he had run away with that, lest his mother should take it from him, to put it in the savings-bank, for setting him up for his life, or for his burying. What cared he for either? All his ambition was to have a fiddle, and a fiddle was to be had for three and sixpence. Joe Gander was tired. He was fain to sit down at intervals on the heaps of stones by the roadside to rest. His shoes were very poor, with soles worn through, so that the stones hurt his feet. At this time of the year the highways were fresh-metalled, and as he stumbled over the newly broken stones they cut his soles and his ankles turned. He was foot-sore and weary in body, but his heart never failed him. Before him shone the red violin with the yellow bridge, and the beautiful bow strung with shining white hair. When he had that, all his weariness would pass as a dream. He would hunger no more, cry no more, feel no more sickness or faintness. He would draw the bow over the strings and play with his fingers on the catgut, and the waves of music would thrill and flow, and away on those melodious waves his soul would float far from trouble, far from want, far from tears, into a shining, sunny world of music. So he picked himself up when he fell, and staggered to his feet from the stones on which he rested, and pressed on. The sun was setting as he entered the town. He went straight to the shop he so well remembered, and to his inexpressible delight saw still in the window the coveted violin, price three shillings and sixpence. Then he timidly entered the shop, and with trembling hand held out the money. "'What do you want?' "'It,' said the boy. "'It.' To him the shop held but one article. The dolls, the wooden horses, the tin steam-engines, the bats, the kites, were unconsidered. He had seen and remembered only one thing, the red violin. "'It,' said the boy, and pointed. When little Joe had got the violin, he pressed it to his shoulder, and his heart bounded as though it would have burst the pigeon breast. His dull eyes lightened, and into his white sunken cheeks shot a hectic flame. He went forth with his head erect and his firm foot, holding his fiddle to the shoulder and the bow in hand. He turned his face homeward. Now he would return to father and stepmother, to his little bed at the head of the stairs, to his scanty meals, to the school, to the sweeping of the park drive, and to his stepmother's scoldings and his father's beatings. He had his fiddle, and he cared for nothing else. 
He waited till he was out of the town before he tried it. Then, when he was on a lonely part of the road, he seated himself in the hedge, under a holly tree covered with scarlet berries, and tried his instrument. Alas, it had hung many years in the shop window, and the catgut was old and the glue had lost its tenacity. One string started, then when he tried to screw up a second, it sprang as well, and then the bridge collapsed and fell. Moreover, the hairs on the bow came out, they were unresined. Then little Joe's spirits gave way. He laid the bow and the violin on his knees and began to cry. As he cried he heard the sound of approaching wheels and the clatter of a horse's hoofs. He heard, but he was immersed in sorrow and did not heed and raise his head to see who was coming. Had he done so he would have seen nothing as his eyes were swimming with tears. Looking out of them he saw only as one sees who opens his eyes when diving. "'Hello, young shaver! Dang you! What do you mean give me such a cursed hunt after you as this?' You as ain't worth a trouble, eh? The voice was that of his father, who drew up before him. Mr. Lambole had made inquiries when it was discovered that Joe was lost, first at the school, where it was most unlikely he would be found, then at the public house, at the gardener's and the gamekeeper's, then he had looked down the well and then up the chimney. After that he went to the cottage and the quarry. Roger Gale knew nothing of him. Presently someone coming from the nearest village mentioned that he had been seen there, whereupon Lambole borrowed Father Egan's trap and went after him, peering right and left of the road with his one eye. Sure enough, he had been through the village. He had passed the turnpike. The women there described him accurately as a sort of tottle, fool. Mr. Lambole was not a pleasant-looking man. He was as solidly built as a navvy. The backs of his hands were hairy, and his fist was so hard and his blows so weighty that for sport he was wont to knock down and kill at a blow the oxen sent to butcher robins for slaughter. And that he did with his fist alone, hitting the animal on the head between the horns, a little forward of the horns. That was a great feat of strength, and Lambeau was proud of it. He had a long back and short legs. The back was not pliable or bending. It was hard braced with sinews tough as horses, and supported a pair of shoulders that could sustain the weight of an ox. His face was of a coppery colour, caused by exposure to the air and drinking. His hair was light. That was almost the only feature his son had derived from him. It was very light, too light for his dark red face. It grew about his neck and under his chin as a Newgate collar. There was a great deal of it, and his face, encircled by the pale hair, looked like an angry moon surrounded by a fog-bow. Mr. Lambole had a queer temper. He bottled up his anger, and when it blew the cork out, it spurted over and splashed all his home. It flew in the faces and soused everyone who came near him. Mr. Lambole took his son roughly by the arm and lifted him into the tax-cart. The boy offered no resistance. His spirit was broken his hopes extinguished. For months he had yearned for the red fiddle, price three and six, and now that, after great pains and privations, he had acquired it, the fiddle would not sound. "'Ain't you ashamed of yourself, giving your dear dada such trouble, eh, viper?' Mr. Lambole turned the horse's head homeward. He had his black patch towards the little gander, 
seated in the bottom of the cart, hugging his wrecked violin. When Mr. Lumble spoke he turned his face round to bring the active eye to bear on the shrinking, crouching little figure below. The viper made no answer, but looked up. Mr. Lumble turned his face away, and the seeing eye watched the horse's ears, and the black patch was towards a frightened, piteous, pleading little face looking up with the light of the evening sky irradiating it, showing how wan it was, how hollow were the cheeks, how sunken the eyes, how sharp the little pinched nose. The boy put up his arm that held the bow, and wiped his eyes with his sleeve. In so doing he poked his father in the ribs with the end of the bow. "'Now then!' exclaimed Mr. Lambole, with an oath. "'What darned insolence be you up to now, gorilla?' If he had not held the whip in one hand and the reins in the other, he would have taken the bow from the child and flung it into the road. He contented himself with wrapping Joe's head with the end of the whip. "'What's that you got there, eh?' he asked. The child replied timidly, "'Please, father, a fiddle.' "'Where'd you get un? Steal it, eh?' Joe answered, trembling. "'No, Dada, I bought it.' "'Bought it? Where did you get the money?' "'Miss Amory gave it me.' "'How much?' the gander answered. "'Her gave me five shilling.' Five shillings? And what did that blessed—' He did not say blessed, but something quite the reverse. "'Fiddle cost you. Three and sixpence.' "'So you've only one and six left?' I've none, Dada. Why not? Because I spent one shilling on a pipe for you and sixpence on a thimble for stepmother as a present, answered the child, with a flicker of hope in his dim eyes that this would propitiate his father. Dash me, roared the roadmaker, if you ain't worse nor Mr. Chamberlain as would rob us of the cheap loaf. What in the name of thunder and bones do you mean squandering the precious money over fooleries like that for? I got my pipe, black as your back shall be before to-morrow, and mother has an old thimble as full of holes as I'll make your skin before the night is much older. Wait till we get home, and I'll make pretty music out of that there fiddle. Just you see if I don't. Joe shivered in his seat, and his head fell. Mr. Lambole had a playful wit. He beguiled his journey home by indulging in it, and his humour flashed above the head of the child like summer lightning. "'You're hardly expecting the abundance of the supper that's awaiting you,' he said, with his black patch glowering down at the irresponsive heap in the corner of the cart. "'No stinting of the dressing, I can tell you. You like your meat well basted, don't you? The basting shall not incur your disapproval as insufficient. Underdone? Oh, dear, no. Nothing underdone for me. Pickles? I can promise you that there is something in pickle for you.' Hot, very hot, and stinging. Plenty of capers, mutton and capers. Mashed potatoes, was the request for that on the tip of your tongue? Sorry, I can only give you half what you want. The mash, not the potatoes. There is nothing comparable in my mind to young pig with crackling. The hide is well striped, cut in lines from the neck, to the tail. I think we'll have crackling on our pig before morning." He now threw his seeing eye into the depths of the cart, to note the effect his fun had on the child, but he was disappointed. It had evoked no hilarity. 
joe had fallen asleep exhausted by his walk worn out with disappointments with his head on his fiddle that lay on his knees the jogging of the cart the attitude affected his wound the plaster had given way and the blood was running over the little red fiddle and dripping into its hollow body through the s-hole on each side it was too dark for mr lamble to notice this he set his lips his self-esteem was hurt at the child not relishing his waggery mrs lamble observed it when shortly after the cart drew up at the cottage and she lifted the sleeping child out i must take the cart back to farmer eggins said her husband duty first and pleasure after when his father was gone mrs lamble said now then joe you've been a very wicked bad boy and god will never forgive you for the naughtiness you have committed and the trouble to which you have put your poor father and me she would have spoken more sharply but that his head needed her care and the sight of the blood disarmed her moreover she knew that her husband would not pass over what had occurred with a reprimand get off your clothes and go to bed joe she said when she had readjusted the plaster you may take a piece of dry bread with you and i'll see if i can't persuade your father to put off whipping of you for a day or two joe began to cry there she said don't cry when wicked children do wicked things they must suffer for them it is the law of nature and she went on you ought to be that ashamed of yourself that you'd be glad for the earth to open up under you and swallow you up like Korah, Datham, and Abiram, running away from so good and happy a home, and such tender parents. But I reckon you be lost to natural affection as you be to reason. May I take my fiddle with me? asked the boy. Oh, take your fiddle if you like, answered his mother. Much good may it do you. Here it is, all smeared with blood. Let me wipe it first, or you'll mess the bedclothes with it. There, she said, as she gave him the broken instrument. Say your prayers and go to sleep, though I reckon your prayers will never reach to heaven coming out of such a wicked, unnatural heart. So the little gander went to his bed. The cottage had but one bedroom and a landing above the steep and narrow flight of steps that led to it from the kitchen. On this landing was a small truckle bed on which Joe slept. He took off his clothes and stood in his little short shirt of very coarse white linen. He knelt down and said his prayers, with both his hands spread over his fiddle. Then he got into bed, and until his stepmother fetched away the benzoline lamp, he examined the instrument. He saw that the bridge might be set up again with a little glue, and that fresh catgut strings might be supplied. He would take his fiddle next day to Roger Gale, and ask him to help him to mend it for him. He was sure Roger would take an interest in it. Roger had been mysterious of late, hinting that the time was coming when Joey would have a first-rate instrument, and learn to play like a Paganini. Yes, the case of the red fiddle was not desperate. Just then he heard the door below open, and his father's step. "'Where is that toad?' said Mr. Lambole. Joe held his breath, and his blood ran cold. He could hear every word, every sound in the room below. "'He's gone to bed,' answered Mrs. Lambole. "'Leave that poor little creature alone to-night, Samuel. His head has been bad, and he don't look well. He's overdone.' "'Susan,' said the roadmaker, 
I've been simmering all the way to town, and bubbling and boiling all the way back, and busting is what I be now, and bust I will. Little Joe sat up in bed, hugging the violin, and his tow-like hair stood up on his head. His great stupid eyes stared wide with fear. In the dark the iris in each had grown big and deep and solemn. "'Give me my stick,' said Mr. Lambole. "'I've promised him a taste of it, and a taste won't suffice to-night. He must have a gorge of it.' "'I've put it away,' said Mrs. Lambole. "'Samuel Wright is right, but I'm not one to stand between the child and what he deserves. But he ain't in condition for it to-night. He wants feeding up to it.' Without wasting another word on her, the roadmaker went upstairs. The shuddering, cowering little fellow saw first the red face, surrounded by a halo of pale hair, rise above the floor, then the strong square shoulders, then the clenched hands, and then his father stood before him, revealed down to his thick boots. The child crept back in the bed against the wall, and would have disappeared through it had the wall been soft-hearted, as in fairy tales, and open to receive him. He clasped his little violin tight to his heart and then the blood that had fallen into it trickled out and ran down his shirt, staining it, upon the bedclothes, staining them. But the father did not see this. He was ever vessing with fury, his pulses went at a gallop, and his great fists clutched spasmodically. "'You Judas Iscariot! Come here!' he shouted. But the child only pressed closer against the wall. "'What? Disobedient and daring!' Do you hear? Come to me!" The trembling child pointed to a pretty little pipe on the bedclothes. He had drawn it from his pocket and taken the paper off it and laid it there, and stuck the silver-headed thimble in the bowl for his stepmother when she came upstairs to take the lamp. "'Come here, vagabond!' He could not. He had not the courage nor the strength. He still pointed pleadingly to the little presents he had bought with his eighteenpence. "'You won't, you dogged, insulting being!' roared the roadmaker, and rushed at him, knocking over the pipe which fell and broke on the floor, and trampling flat the thimble. "'You won't yet! Always full of sulks and defiance! Oh, you ungrateful one, you!' And then he had him by the collar of his nightshirt, and dragged him from his bed, and with his violence tore the button off, and with his other hand he wrenched the violin away and beat the child over the back with it as he dragged him from the bed. "'Oh, my mammy! My mammy!' cried Joe. He was not crying out for his stepmother. It was the agonized cry of his frightened heart for the one only being who had ever loved him, and whom God had removed from him. Suddenly Samuel Lambole started back. Before him, and between him and the child, stood a pale, ghostly form, and he knew his first wife. He stood speechless and quaking. Then, gradually recovering himself, he stumbled down the stairs and seated himself, looking pasty and scared, by the fire below. "'What is the matter with you, Samuel?' asked his wife. "'I've seen her,' he gasped. "'Don't ask no more questions.' Now when he was gone, little Joe, filled with terror, not at the apparition which he had not seen, for his eyes were too dazed to behold it, but with apprehension of the chastisement that awaited him, scrambled out of the window, and dropped on the pigsty roof, 
and from thence jumped to the ground. Then he ran, ran as fast as his legs could carry him, still hugging his instrument to the churchyard, and on reaching that he threw himself on his mother's grave and sobbed, Oh, Mammy! Oh, Mammy! Father wants to beat me and take away my beautiful violin, but, oh, Mammy, my violin won't play. And when he had spoken, from out of the grave rose the form of his lost mother and looked kindly on him. Joe saw her and he had no fear. Mammy, said he, Mammy, my violin costs three shillings and sixpence, and I can't make it play no ways. Then the spirit of his mother passed a hand over the strings and smiled. Joe looked into her eyes, and they were as stars, and he put the violin under his chin and drew the bow across the strings, and lo, they sounded wondrously. His soul thrilled, his heart bounded, his dull eye brightened. He was as though caught up in a chariot of fire and carried to heavenly places. His bow worked rapidly. Such strains poured from the little instrument as he had never heard before. It was to him as though heaven opened, and he heard the angels performing there, and he with his fiddle was taking a part in the mighty symphony. He felt not the cold. The night was not dark to him. His head no longer ached. It was as though, after long seeking through life, he had gained an undreamed-of prize, reached some glorious consummation. There was a musical party that same evening at the hall. Miss Amory played beautifully with extraordinary feeling and execution, both with and without accompaniment on the piano. Several ladies and gentlemen sang and played. There were duets and trios. During the performances the guests talked to each other in low tones about various topics. Said one lady to Mrs. Amory, "'How strange it is that among the English lower classes there is no love of music!' "'There is none at all,' answered Mrs. Amory. "'Our rector's wife has given herself great trouble to set up parochial entertainments, but we find that nothing takes with the people but comic songs, and these, instead of elevating, vulgarise them.' There is no music in them. The only people with music in their souls are the Germans and the Italians. Yes, said Mrs. Amory with a sigh. It is sad but true there is neither poetry nor picturesqueness nor music among the English peasantry. You have never heard of one self-taught with a real love of music in this country? Never! Such do not exist among us. The parish churchwarden was walking along the road on his way to his farmhouse, and the road passed under the churchyard wall. As he walked along the way with a not-too-steady step, for he was returning from the public house, he was surprised and frightened to hear music proceed from among the graves. It was too dark for him to see any figure then, only the tombstones loomed on him in ghostly shapes. He began to quake, and finally turned and ran nor did he slacken his pace till he reached the tavern, where he burst in, shouting, "'There's ghosts abroad! I've heard them in the churchyard making music!' The revellers rose from their cups. "'Shall we go in here?' they asked. "'I'll go for one,' said a man, "'if others will go with me.' "'Aye,' said a third, "'and if the ghosts be playing a jolly good tune, we'll chip in.' So the whole half-tipsy party reeled along the road, talking very loud, to encourage themselves and the others, till they approached the church, the spire of which stood up dark against the night sky. "'There's no lights in the windows,' said one. 
no observed the churchwarden i didn't notice any myself it was from the graves the music came as if all the dead were squeaking like pigs hush all kept silence not a sound could be heard i'm sure i heard music before said the churchwarden i'll bet a gallon of ale i did there ain't no music now though remarked one of the men no more there ain't said others well i don't care i say i heard it asseverated the churchwarden let's go up closer all of the party drew nearer to the wall of the graveyard one man incapable of maintaining his legs unaided sustained himself on the arm of another well i do believe churchwarden eggins as how you have been leading us a wild goose chase said a fellow then the clouds broke and a bright dazzling pure ray shot down on a grave in the churchyard and revealed a little figure lying on it i do believe said one man as how if he ain't led us a goose chase he's brought us after a gander surely that is little joe thus encouraged and their fears dispelled the whole half-tipsy party stumbled up the graveyard steps staggered among the tombs some tripping on the mounds and falling prostrate all laughed talked joked with one another the only one silent there was little joe gander and he was gone to join in the great symphony above End of section 23, Little Joe Gander, Part 2 Recording by Robin Skelsey